Well, good morning, Nebraska. Uh, my first time ever being in Nebraska, and um, it's a great place to be, nice and quiet, especially if you're from the big city, a city slicker, slicker like myself. And so it's a nice change of pace, um, beautiful little uh, city that you got here. Um, I told my mom uh, that I'm going to be in Nebraska this weekend to preach, and she was like, oh, you going to that big furniture place up in, um, you know, one of the suburbs in, our, in, our, in Dallas? He's like, I don't know if there's a church that met there. I was like, no, mom, we're going to go to Nebraska. I was in the state of Nebraska. I was like, there's a state called Nebraska? And so it was, it was, I had to explain to my mom a little bit. My kids didn't know where Nebraska was, but I had to show them on the map. But here I am, and I want to thank Anthony and Ashley for just hosting. And as Anthony said, I've gotten to know him for the past year, and it's so uncanny. I, just the more I get to know him, I'm like, man, did we get separated at birth somehow? Because I feel like you're like a, a brother from another mother. And we have so much in common. We think the same way. He's even last night talking. I just like, even from a ministry and pastoral perspective, we think so alike. And so it's been a blessing. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And it's a privilege for me to be able to share God's word. And uh, I know that we prayed a couple of times already, but if you allow me to pray over us this morning uh, before we receive the word of the Lord, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for your good. And God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity just to share in, these, in this time with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And what unites us is Jesus. It's you. And so I thank you that even though I've met everyone here for the first time today, God, there is a kindred spirit because of Jesus. And I pray that, God, that as we now hear from your word, that you would speak directly into the places where you need to speak into, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would stir our affections for you in a powerful way today. We thank you. We love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, it's said that life is all about making decisions. And whether you like it or not, we have to make decisions every single day, right? Many of you made decisions this morning, such as, you know, what are we going to wear? What am I going to wear today for church? Um, am I going to wear the same thing I wore last week, the same thing I wore yesterday? What am I going to do after church? Where am I going to go eat? And some of you at this moment are thinking about where I'm going to eat right after this. And there's a great place here in Ashland. I had some great pizza from a gas station that I could never imagine. I was like, gas station pizza? What kind of host are you? But it was delicious. It was great. And so if you want some pizza, go to, I forgot the place, Casey's, I think. I don't know if they're sponsoring uh, Riverview Church or not, but go there. <laughs> now they are. And so we have to make these decisions every single day. What am I going to do? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to go? What am, you know, all these different things. And some of these decisions don't seem very significant when we make them because we do them every single day. But then there are those big decisions that we have to make, right? There are those things that come about in life Maybe not so often, but these are big decisions that we have to make. Decisions that some of you might be thinking, such as, who am I going to marry? When am I going to marry? Is he or she the right person that I want to spend the rest of my life with? Maybe some of you are wrestling with and thinking or have been thinking with this, especially over this past year and what's happened in our country. What, what am I going to do? How am I going to support my family? Where am I going to find a job? What am I going to do about my marriage is falling apart? It's been such a tough year on our marriage. What am I going to do about my marriage? What about my kids? What about my future? And so we have these big questions that we're wrestling with. And if you're there, I want to say to you today, I'm right there with you. Because even as we speak, my wife and I, we are in the process of having to make a very big decision very, very soon 
And we know it's going to impact not only just our lives individually, but our family, our children, and, and beyond. And, and so again, you could say that life is all about making decisions. Not just making decisions, but quality decisions when it matters the most. And I think we feel the pressure to make all these right decisions most in the area of our relationships. Because we know that the decisions that we make not only impact us individually, but have the potential to impact the people around us and most likely the people that matter the most to us. This is why decisions are so important. Now, some of you here, as you came in, you're looking at the title screen, and there's, an, there's, there's these three letters there, DTR, and some of you may be wondering what's that mean. The acronym for DTR, in case you're wondering, means define the relationship. Define the relationship. And if you don't, may not know what that means, if you're not familiar with that, a DTR is usually that pivotal moment in any dating relationship where the couple has to decide, is this going to be something that's going to be fun and casual and we're just friends, you know, are we going to stay in the friend zone or is this going to be something deeper? Is it going to lead to something more? So it's that pivotal moment in any dating relationship. And my wife and I, when we were dating, I guess sort of dating and talking, we, we had a DTR moment, and how it went was my wife called me one night, or she was dating me at the time, and the first thing that came out of her mouth was, okay, Andrew, DTR. And I had no idea what a DTR was. I was like, what, are you, what in the world are you talking about? She's like, oh my gosh, you don't know what it is, but you have to explain a DTR, which makes it really awkward, right? Because it's a serious conversation. You expect the other person, like, we're going to define the relationship, but then you have to define what to define the relationship was. And so it's a very awkward thing, and I don't remember exactly what I said that night to make her stay with me, but whatever it was, it worked because now we are together. We've been married for almost 15 years. We have three beautiful kids, and so obviously that was a pivotal moment in our relationship that changed the trajectory of our entire lives, Right? And so decisions are so important because they can impact not only our lives but the people around us. And you know, not only I, th I think this is true in our relationship with one another, but I believe that the same is true in our relationship with Jesus as well. And I feel that most of us, if not all of us, we need to have a DTR where we need to define the relationship. And we need to ask ourselves a question, you know, where do we stand in our relationship and in our walk with Jesus? And I don't know, but maybe some of you are ready. As you hear that, some of you are ready to have this DTR, and you're ready to take that next step in your faith journey and walk with him. And you're ready to move to something more deeper, move past the casual and the comfortable into something deeper. And so you're ready to have this DTR. But some of you here aren't quite as ready. You sort of like the way things are right now because it's easy. It's nice. It's not threatening. It's very noncommittal. It's, it's very comfortable. And that's the idea of making a commitment and taking your relationship to the next level with Jesus makes you a little uncomfortable or maybe even a little scared because you're worried about, okay, so if I were to really come heart to heart with Jesus, what is he going to ask me to do? What is he going to require me to do? And so we're scared, we're fearful. What if he asks me to give up something? What if he asks me to go somewhere? What if, what if, what if? 
But wherever you may be this morning, and whatever the case may be in your life, I believe that all of us need to have a DTR moment where we ask ourselves, where do I stand in my relationship, in my walk with Jesus? And so with all that said, we're going to be looking at an incredible passage in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there right now. And the first service, I always just really encourage to see physical Bibles that people brought instead of looking on their phones, because as a pastor, we know the dirty little secrets that when you're looking on your phone, sometimes it's not the Bible that you're looking at. Sometimes it's Facebook. Sometimes it's Amazon, because what am I going to look at next? Sometimes it's Yelp, because you're figuring out what they're going to eat afterwards. Like I said, pizza is really good here in Ashland at a gas station. But anyway, whatever the case may be, wherever you are online, close Amazon and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start reading from verse 31. It's the word of the Lord. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly, clearly about this to everyone, but then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now I want to pause right here for a moment and just explain what's going on here in these couple of verses. Now, up until this point, Jesus had been performing miracle after miracle after miracle. For example, just a couple of chapters earlier, it said that Jesus fed 5,000 men. Now, that number of 5,000 didn't include women and children. So it may have been that Jesus fed over 15,000 people with what? Five loaves of bread and two fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish is not even enough for me to have a decent meal. But he fed 15,000 plus people with just that. And he didn't do it just once. Earlier in Mark chapter 8, he says that he fed another 4,000 men. So that would have been a lot more people as well. And not only did Jesus feed the multitudes, we read in the Gospels that he actually raised someone from the dead. He cast out demons. He walked on water and he gave sight to the blind. And because of everything, all the miracles that he was doing, it says that massive crowds of people were following him wherever he went. So again, imagine 15,000 plus people following Jesus around everywhere he went. And I'm sure all of them had some thoughts and opinions about who this Jesus of Nazareth was. I mean, wouldn't you? If you saw someone doing the things that Jesus was doing in front of your eyes, wouldn't you have some thoughts about who this person may be? Some opinions? Wouldn't you have some questions? And so Jesus asked his disciples, just a few verses earlier in verse 27, he asks them, well, okay, so who do people say that I am? And they answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say maybe one of the prophets. But then he throws this curveball and he asks them this question, okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? And of course, Peter, as he usually does, jumps up, raises his hands like, ooh, pick me, Jesus. I got the answer right here, your favorite disciple. And he says, you are the Christ. 
You are the Messiah. You are the one that the prophets said would come and then would overthrow the empire, overthrow oppression and deliver us from captivity and set us free. And in a parallel account in Matthew chapter 16, it says that when Peter said this, Jesus replied, Blessed, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so you will be known as Peter, Petros, the rock, because on this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And if that wasn't good enough, he goes on, he says, not only that, but I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I mean, what an incredible statement. I mean, just think about how Peter must have been feeling after hearing all of this praise from Jesus. And I don't know, I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm sure as Jesus said, you are the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. He was thinking, looking at the other disciples, thinking, did y'all hear that? John, did you hear that? Right? Judas, over there, doing whatever you're doing, sneaking around. Did you hear what he said? He called me the rock. You know, I've been hitting the gym a little bit. Maybe that's why he's calling me. And he says he's going to build his church thing on me, the rock. And I don't know now, I don't know what this church thing really means. I have no idea, but it sounds really important. So I must be a very important person for Jesus say, to say that I'm going to build this whatever church thing on you. So Peter must have been feeling really good about himself, right? To be praised by Jesus in such a way. But then, and that didn't last very long at all. Because again, in verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and killed, and after three days rise again. And Peter, he didn't like that very much. So he took Jesus aside, and it says he began rebuking him. And I don't, again, I don't know, we don't have the words that Peter said, but I imagine them to be something like this. Now wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down there, Jesus. What, you're supposed to be the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's supposed to overthrow the Roman Empire. You're supposed to usher in a new age for God's people. And not only that, but, but Jesus, you said that you're going to build this whole church thing on me. But, but, but if you die, then that's not going to happen anymore. And so, you know what? Here's, here's, here's a new game plan, Jesus. We're not going to do what you say. You're not going to do what you say. What you're going to do is you're not going to die. In fact, you know, in fact, I forbid you from talking about dying or being killed or suffering or anything like that anymore. You think about that. The nerve of Peter to be able to go before Jesus and rebuke him to his face. Before you start criticizing Peter for what he did, you have to understand and to see from his perspective and how confusing and upsetting this must have been for him and all of the other disciples. Because again, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, which was an outrageous thing for anybody at this time 
to say, to make that claim in that statement. Because according to Jewish rules and Jewish customs, anybody who would utter, even think about uttering those words immediately deserved to be stoned to death in public by, their, by God's people. That was the punishment. But then all the miracles that he did and all the things that he taught confirmed that he was in fact who he claimed to be. And at this point, disciples concluded that Jesus was indeed the Messiah based on everything they had seen and heard and witnessed. But the problem was that Peter wanted a Messiah on his own terms and a dead one didn't match up with the expectations of what he thought the Messiah should be. Because you see, he, like so many others, was hoping for a mighty military leader who would rise up and rally the people to rise up against the Roman Empire who was the powerhouse of that day and that they would overcome and that they would be set free from their oppression. That's the kind of Messiah they were looking for, not someone who was going to let people walk all over him and suffer and die. And so because Jesus didn't measure up to their expectations, Peter thought it would be a great idea to go and teach Jesus a lesson. And you know what's interesting here is that this word for rebuke, this word for rebuke is the same word that Jesus used when he was casting out demons. He literally rebuked the demons out of people. And it means to condemn someone for doing or saying something blasphemous. And it was actually the same things same thing that the religious leaders were doing when they rebuked and when they were condemning Jesus for what he was doing. And so what did Jesus say in response? Let's keep reading in verse 33. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples, or looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I'm pretty sure that this was not the response that Peter was expecting. Because again, just a few verses earlier, he was being commended and praised for being the rock. And being blessed. And that whatever he, he was going to be given, the, kingdom, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You know, Jesus, you know, often called the Pharisees, and he, he labeled them a lot of different things, and he called them many different things, primarily one being hypocrites. And so he would often call them hypocrites. He would call them whitewashed tombs. He would call them this brood of vipers. And that's pretty bad. If Jesus is calling you any of these things, or just in general, if anybody were to go up to you and say, you know what, you brood of vipers, that's not a nice thing to say. I would feel pretty offended by that. It hurts my feelings a little bit, right? You're a hypocrite. No one wants to hear that. When was the last time you'd be like, you're a hypocrite? Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. That's so kind. That's such a nice guy. Oh, yes, I'm a whitewashed too. Mm, that, makes, that makes my day. No one has thought that. So these things are pretty bad. But being called Satan is like worse, right? It's like, what can you say after, you know what, you're Satan? Uh, I don't know what to say in response to that. You know, back in the days uh, when I was growing up, this is very not appropriate now, so don't do it at all. But um, your mama jokes were really popular back in the days when I was growing up, right? And so, I don't know, we had nothing else. We had no smartphones, right? So what did we do? We just make fun of each other's mothers, 
It's terrible things. Don't do it. Kids, don't do this at home, right? So what we will do, how the game goes is that someone will say, well, your mama is this. And then, ooh, and then someone will be like, oh, yeah, well, your mama is this. Ooh, it burns, doesn't it, right? And so we will go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it would come to a point where, where whoever said the really good one would be like, oh. And then you'd be like, I have nothing else to say. You got me. That was a good one. I can't come back. And that person would win. So it's, you know, this whole, it's just really dumb things that we did back in those days like many of us did growing up. And so it's, I would imagine Peter felt something like that, where Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He's like, ooh, I got nothing. And I, I mean, he went from being the rock to being Satan all in one breath. And so imagine how Peter must have felt when he heard this, heard this from Jesus. It's like totally worse. Someone calling, especially if that someone calling you Satan is Jesus. Not only that, but it says that Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples, which meant that he said all of this in front of them. It wasn't that they were having a private conversation. It was in front of everybody. So again, imagine how Peter must have felt at this moment when he heard those words, get behind me, Satan, which is the complete opposite of what he said earlier, blessed are you. And I think the reason why Jesus turned to the disciples was not because he wanted to single out Peter or embarrass him in front of them, but because they were probably all thinking the very same thing as well. And they were just as shocked when Jesus said what he did earlier about having to suffer and die. But Peter was the only one who had enough courage and guts to say anything about it. And I think... Also, there is something very important that I want to point out in Peter's encounter with Jesus because I think he often gets a bad rap. And he's known for being this guy who just sort of puts his foot in his mouth and he says these things out loud and he often gets in trouble because of what he says. But you know, I don't think any of us are in any better position than him. Because when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, I don't think he was necessarily saying that Peter was Satan or that Satan had possessed him somehow, or that the devil had manifested himself in Peter. I think that what Jesus was saying to him was, Peter, Peter, the way that you are thinking, the way that you are understanding, the way that you see who I am, that is satanic. Because it's contrary to what God desires, and who God says I am. And I think this is why he said, you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. And likewise, I think we too are guilty of doing that as well. How, you may ask? When we start to impose who we think God should be, what we think God should do for us, instead of allowing him to inform us of who we are, who he is, and how he should relate to us and what he should be doing for us. And according to Jesus, this is a satanic way of thinking. And again, I believe that all of us, myself included, we're all guilty of doing this as well. And so what can we do then? If that is the case, what can we do to guard ourselves from this? Well, let's keep reading on from verse 34. And so after saying this, Jesus, calling the rest of the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now here in these verses, Jesus gives three very specific requirements. First, he says you must deny yourself, then pick up your cross and follow him. And rather than seeing them as kind of three separate, isolated things, I think it's better for us to think of them as a progression. Don't think of them as like a multiple choice thing. I can pick denying myself, picking up our cross, following him. Mm, I'm going to pick none of the above. Don't think of it that way. Think of it more as steps. And the first step that we see here is to deny ourselves. Now, that word for deny Take a look at the original language means to disown or disregard someone. And this was a really, really big deal back in those. You have to understand because to deny someone didn't simply mean to not allow them to have something. Like what I do with my kids before they go to bed, they always want some kind of sweets, some kind of candy, right? And so who do they ask? They don't go to mama and ask, you know, mommy, oh, can I have some candy before bed? Can I have some sweets? No, they go to daddy because daddy's nicer. My wife texted me last night and she said, yeah, the kids really miss you. Because you're the fun, you're the fun parent. I'm the, you're the good cop. I'm the bad cop. I don't let them do anything. They get away with everything with you, right? So uh, they know to come to daddy, but I know better. I know that if I give my kids anything sweet before they go to bed, then they're not going to be the ones that suffer. We are going to be the ones that suffer. Why? Because they're going to be bouncing off the walls at night. It's going to take them forever to fall asleep. And the next morning, when they, when we have to wake them up for school, it is a nightmare. So we deny them the sweets, in order to save our sanity. But that's not what it's talking about here, actually. It's not saying denying someone something that they really want. It went way beyond that. It literally meant being disowned and rejected. And again, this was a big deal, especially if you were a Jew living in this time. Because to be disowned meant that you no longer had any rights to your family name, You had no inheritance. You had no privileges. You had no place within the community as a whole. Basically, you were stripped of your identity and everything you are. You are left with nothing. You are nothing if you are being disowned by your family. And so when Jesus said, you must deny yourself, he was essentially saying that they had to renounce and reject the self as the object of life and their ambitions. You know, back in the 1500s, there was a mathematician and an astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus. Some of you may have studied him in school. And he concluded that the Earth was not the center on which the universe or the galaxy rotated, but that the sun was at the very center. And so it was a, his theory was, it's referred to as the Copernican Revolution because it literally revolutionized the way we understand and view the galaxy. And so it was a very important event. And likewise, I believe that we too need a Copernican Revolution of the soul. Because too many of us have come to this false belief that the world and everything in it revolves around me. How does this make me feel? How is this going to benefit me? How is this thing going to make my life better? You know, this is true in our relationship with Jesus as well. And we live our lives oftentimes as if he 
is supposed to orbit around our lives rather than the reality that our lives are supposed to orbit and revolve around him. And we've come to this false belief that it is God's or Jesus' duty to make our lives better, to give us what we need and want. We've come to this belief that if we just add a little bit of Jesus, or as my other pastor friend puts it, pour a little bit of God sauce on it, then everything will be better. He'll give us what we want. He'll answer all of our prayers. But you know, friends, that is not what believing and following Jesus is at, is, is at all. It's not about sprinkling a little bit of Jesus and pouring some God sauce on our lives. It's about renouncing the self and submitting to his authority and his rule over our lives. And so we need a Copernican revolution of the soul where he is the very center of our lives. And this is why I believe Jesus begins by saying that it starts with the denying of the self. That that has to be the first step if you truly want to follow him. So that's the first step. The second step that we see here is to pick up our cross. Now, this idea of picking up or carrying our cross appears a total of five times in all the Gospels. For example, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And not only that, but whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And basically here he's saying that if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to literally hate. You have to deny. You have to reject. You have to disown your father and mother, your brothers, your sisters, your wife, your children, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me. And not only that, but on top of it, you have to be willing to pick up your cross and suffer for my sake if you want to be my disciple. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that, that, that following him isn't just something we do when we have some extra time, when we feel like it, when it doesn't conflict with our busy schedules. It means that we deny and we surrender ourselves, even if it means costing our lives. You know, I think this is why he used the image of the cross, because back then the cross was, was the epitome. It symbolizes the epitome of suffering, rejection, and death, and torture, everything that's wrong. It wasn't, that something, it wasn't something that people wore around their neck as a fashion statement. It wasn't that something that people drew on things and kind of prove a point. It wasn't something that people posted on their Facebook wall. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't a positive thing. Just imagine you wearing a necklace with a big electric chair on it. That's what it was. It was, it was a symbol of immense suffering and torture and death and execution and shame. And so when Jesus said, pick up your cross... I'm sure everyone there cringed a little bit as they were hearing this. Again, crowds of people were hearing this because it represented the most brutal and public act of torture and suffering during this time. And by making this statement, Jesus was saying, look, look, I want you to know exactly what it is that you are 
walking into what you are looking forward to when you choose to follow me. First of all, life is going to get really uncomfortable. Because there are going to be times when you'll have to make some difficult decisions. And there will be times when you'll have to sacrifice or give up some things that are important and valuable to you. But, but that is the way of the cross. That is the way of the cross. He wanted them to know and understand exactly what they were going to walk into. And that by choosing to follow him, that they are choosing to walk the same path that he is, the way of the cross. This is German theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, Anthony and I were talking last night, and he quoted C.S. Lewis, which is all right, you know, C.S. Lewis is all right, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's like, ooh, German. But, um, but anyway, I'm a, I'm a big quote nut. I like, to, I like to acquire or gather quotes. I don't remember a lot of things, but I have this thing where I just remember quotes. And so this is a great quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German theologian, and he put it this way. It's a great quote. It's a little bit long, so just bear with me. He said, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. And he says, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. It's not the end, but it's the beginning. And this is the famous part of the quote. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls someone, he bids him to first come and die to the self. In other words, he invites us to shed our comforts and to join him and on the mission that he is on. And this is essentially what it means to walk alongside with Jesus, to walk with him wherever he goes. And Jesus provides a description of what the flip side of that would look like in verse 35. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will ultimately lose all of it. But in the end, whoever loses his life for me and for the sake of the gospel will end up saving it. And then he goes on to give this rhetorical question as he closes out. He says, because what good would it be if someone were to gain the whole world, gain everything that they wanted, and yet forfeit their soul? And basically the question is, that Jesus is asking is, are you, are you going to choose to follow the way the crowds, which lead to death? Or are you going to choose the way of the cross, which will bring life? And friends, this is a question that I believe we should be asking ourselves every day. Are we going to choose the way of the crowds? Or are we going to choose the way of the cross? So the second step is to pick up your cross. And lastly, quickly, Jesus says in verse 34 that we are to follow him. But again, this only comes after we've taken the steps to deny ourselves and pick up our cross. You know, as a pastor, one of the things that I've observed that has crept into the life of the church and that really breaks my heart is this consumeristic mentality where we 
think that, you know, this whole thing, life is all about us and what Jesus can do for me and how the church can meet my needs and whether I enjoyed the preaching, whether the music was good, whether the programs are good for my kids, and anything that makes me uncomfortable, anything that inconveniences me, if the time is not right, if the atmosphere is not right, if the venue doesn't feel right, then I'm not going to waste my time with it. If the church isn't what I think a church should be, then I'm not going to waste my time and energy on it. And tragically, it's a mentality that so many Christians today have adopted. You know, a few years ago, I, I led a team of high school students on a short-term mission trip to a Navajo reservation in Arizona. And overall, it was an incredible mission trip. It was an amazing mission trip. We saw God work in some powerful, powerful ways. We saw life transformation happening. We, it was just a great mission trip. And so we came back, and of course, the church asked some of our students if they could share their testimony, what they experienced on the trip. And as I was listening to their testimonies, almost all of them sounded something like this. Said, well, I learned so much by going on this mission trip. And God taught me about the importance of being patient and kind and forgiving, and, and I learned so much about myself. I was so blessed as a result of this mission trip. And while as a pastor, I rejoiced at the fact that God was working in the hearts of our students, I, I truly did. I rejoiced in that. There was a part of me that felt restless and uneasy. Because the focus seemed to be more on them, on the me. And I always say to church people that there is the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but there's also this unholy Trinity of the me, the myself, and the I. That I think all of us worship in so many ways and for me as i heard that the focus seemed to be more on them and how god blessed them and what they gained out of it than on the gospel itself than on the life transformation that those who were once dead have been now brought back to life that the stories were not about that it's not about the people that we came to serve in the incredible ways that we saw God working, it was more on me and what did I gain and what did I learn from that. And as a pastor, this concerns me. And what concerns me is that with mission trips and outreach programs like this is that there's this attitude and mentality that is more about what I can learn, what I can gain through it. And what worries me about this is that we're teaching our people, we're teaching God's people to go and do these things because it will somehow benefit them in the end or make them a better person. And the focus is on me and how God has blessed me. And while all these things, again, are great things, I rejoice in that, it is not the primary reason why we should go on mission trips, why we should serve and live beyond ourselves. It's not so that we can learn more about ourselves. It's not so that we can become better people. It's not that we can earn God's favor somehow or receive God's blessing that if I go on this mission trip, then God is obligated to bless my life and give me what I want and make my family better, to fix my marriage, to fix my kids. It's not for that reason. It's not so we can gain something for ourselves. It's about denying ourselves picking up our cross, and following Jesus. And it means conforming more and more day by day into his image, his likeness, as we learn to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. Now at this point, some of you are like, man, this message is so, I feel like I'm just getting punched in the face over and over and over again, and I'm sorry, you'll, Anthony will never invite me again. 
And just in case you're feeling like, man, I just feel like I'm just hitting, getting in the face over and over. Let me lighten things up a little bit for y'all this morning. And so, like Anthony uh, here, my, my brother from another mother, even in an uncanny way, we are both Dallas Cowboys fans. I am a Dallas Cowboys fan because I was born and raised in Texas. I don't know what that guy is. I don't know why that guy's a Dallas Cowboys fan. He's just a glutton for punishment at this point, right? Because it's really hard to be a Cowboys fan. It's hard to stay loyal to the boys, all right? Because, you know, you go into each season, every season you have all these hopes and dreams, and you're like, ooh, this is going to be the year. You watch the preseason, you see all the offseason acquisitions, and you're like, ooh, this is going to be the year that we go all the way. We're going to win more than half of our games, right? It's like, ooh, we cheer for mediocrity, right? And so, and then the season starts, the first few games go really well. You're like, ooh, momentum. That's looking really good, looking really sharp. The team's on momentum. We're going to win the Super Bowl. But then what happens? Always something happens with the Cowboys. Something tragic happens. Dak Prescott breaks his legs, snaps it in two, and we're like, oh my goodness, our franchise quarterback is gone. But you know, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. We have a good backup in Andy Dalton. Now, he's not like great, but you know, he's a good, decent quarterback. And then a couple of games later, he gets a concussion, and he's out for the season. And then all these things happen in the games, and then we end up losing game after game after game. And then before you know it, the whole season is down the drain yet again and again and again. And so it's really hard being a Cowboys fan. And we really need a lot of prayer for God's mercy and grace. But, you know, there's this great joke. Um, there's a lot of Cowboys fans jokes, in case you're wondering. There are a lot. Uh, but um, there's a great one I heard recently, and it goes like this. All right? So how many Cowboys fans does it take to change a light bulb? The answer, they don't. They just talk about how good the old one was. And that is so true. He's like, remember the glory days? And so again, I say all that um, because it's hard to remain loyal to the Cowboys. But the good news always is that there's always next year where we endure the same suffering and torture yet again. But you know, I bring this up. I bring this idea of being a fan up because I think in the same way, we can be fans of Jesus as well. Because a fan can be defined as an enthusiastic admirer. And I'm sure there are plenty of fans among the crowds that followed Jesus back then. And I'm sure they were all very enthusiastic about the amazing miracles that he was able to do and what he could potentially do for them. But the thing was, Jesus was never interested in making fans. He was interested in gaining followers. Because being a fan doesn't cost us anything. But following Jesus will cost us everything, everything. You know, the truth is we can be great fans from the comfort of our couches, from the comfort of our living rooms, from the comfort of our pews. You can be great fans. But following him requires something more. It requires giving up our lives for him. As I mentioned earlier, I think this fan mentality has crept into the life of the church to the point where the church looks more like a stadium full of fans than a sanctuary filled with followers. And each week, fans come to the stadium. They fill up the seats. They sing their favorite songs. They cheer for Jesus. They clap for him. They root for him. They cheer and do all these things for him. But once the service is over, they walk out, their door, out these doors 
there's really no interest in actually following him. But again, he wants disciples. He doesn't care about having a bunch of fans. He wants followers. And he wants disciples who are willing to deny themselves to pick up their cross and follow him, even though it means having to give up some of their comforts, our wants, our pleasures, even our very lives. And he's not interested in just simply touching up our lives here and there. He wants a complete renovation, a complete revolution of the soul. He's calling us, church, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. You know, I'll close with this. You know, honest, uh, personally, I'm not very good with uh, giving gifts. Um, even like I gave, I brought a little gift for them, and I had to put a lot of thought into it because my default mode in giving gifts is just give people gift cards. And some of you are like, like, oh, my goodness, it's so impersonal. It would be the same as just stabbing me through the heart, just giving a gift card, right? Give me something special, meaningful from you. And, you know, but personally, I give gifts that I would like to receive, right? I like getting gift cards because then I get to determine, hey, what I want. I was like, hey, you know, you give me a gift card, I can go buy whatever I want instead of having to do that whole faith thing. Oh, this is so nice. Socks that I already have, right? So to avoid that, I'm like, just give me gift cards. I'm totally fine with gift cards. But I bring that up because do you know the difference between a gift card and a blank check? With a gift card, you determine how much you're going to give that person. But with a blank check, when you give someone a blank check, they, you're giving them the permission to determine how much they are going to take from you. And so that means that if I were to give any one of you a blank check with my signature on it, I am giving you permission to go and empty out my bank account in which you will be sorely disappointed because there's not much in there. But I am giving you permission to take whatever you want that I have. And I bring that up because I wonder, have we given Jesus a gift card or have you given him a blank check? Have you just given him a gift card and said, you know what, I'm going to give you this much, Jesus, and I'm only giving you permission to take this much from me instead of a blank check and say, Jesus, you take everything. If you want everything, you take it. And I wonder, which one have we chosen to give to him? As you hear that, some of you have been thinking, man, Andrew, that is that's such a hard message. It feels like it's just so unfair. It feels like, you know, God is just asking for so much. But, you know, Jesus did the exact same thing for you and for me. In fact, Jesus, on the night that he was arrested and tortured and crucified on a Roman cross, prayed to his heavenly Father, Father, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering from me, yet not my will but your will be done. And even though he knew exactly what, to come, what was to come and what he would have to endure, Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father and gave his life, willingly gave his life. He carried his cross and gave his life for you and for me. And so when he asks to, for us to give us his, our lives, to deny ourselves, pick up the cross and follow him, he is not asking for anything that he himself has not already done for us. Because Jesus denied himself again. He took up his cross and he gave his life for us. 
And by doing so, he made a way for us to know and be known by the Father. And friends, I believe that he is inviting us to follow his example by denying ourselves, by picking up our cross, and by following him. Would you pray with me as we get ready to close this morning? You know, as I was preparing uh, this message, you know, God convicted my heart so much. And the same questions that, that I'm, I'm throwing at you, I, I, I'm wrestling myself. And I'm not coming from a position where I'm any better or saying that I, I've got this figured out. I don't. But my prayer for myself, for all of us here, is that we would begin to ask that question, that we would define the relationship, where we are, where we stand. And ask ourselves, are we ready to make that first step? Are we ready to, maybe for some of you, to deny yourself? Maybe that's the first step. Maybe you've just been so consumed with stuff, the things of life. Maybe God is asking you to lay down some of that. Let some of that go. Maybe for some of you here, Maybe your next step is to pick up your cross. Because life is really comfortable. You kind of like the way things are right now. But what if it were to cost you something very, very valuable to you, maybe even your own life? Would you pick that up and follow him? And as we close, I want us to just really reflect on the question, are, are, are we just fans of Jesus? Or are we willing to follow him and be a follower of Jesus? Are we choosing the way of the crowds? Or are we going to choose the way of the cross? So before we close, I want to give you a moment just to start asking those questions between you and him. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for your word. Your word that is a double-edged sword, it pierces joint and marrow. And God, I confess that it's deeply spoken to me, and I pray that for my brothers and sisters here, that you would likewise speak through your word, that your spirit would, not, would take your word and bring conviction that you would stir our hearts, that you would pierce and you would shine a light and illuminate those places in our lives where you're saying to us, I want that. I want you to let go of that. I want to free you of that. And I want you to follow me. God, I pray that, Lord, that long after we leave this place today, that, God, that you will continue to do a work in our hearts and changing us and speaking into it through your word. God, I thank you once again. God, I commit my, my brothers and sisters, I commit this body, this community, this church to you, that they will be known as people who have chosen to follow you, the cross before them, the world behind them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.